get going. Um, welcome to everyone. Um, my name is Mac Owens. I'm the Dean of Academics here at the Institute of Rural Politics. Um, we are a, an independent graduate school of national security affairs. We offer three master's degrees, full master's degrees. We offer an executive and a professional master's as well. In addition, we have 18 um, certificates. We're very happy to uh, co-sponsor this event with uh, Mark Moyer, whom I will introduce in just a second. Uh, very important topic. We've got a great speaker who has uh, done a great deal of work in this uh, this area. It's a topical topic, as uh, you you know, I think that department, redundancy department. But um, anyway, as I say, we are uh, co-sponsoring this with the uh, Center for uh, Military and Diplomatic History. And uh, Mark Moyer, uh, would you say a couple words, and then I will introduce uh, our moderator. Great. I'm Dr. Mark Moyer. I wanted to thank uh, Dr. Owens, President John Linskowski, and also Katie Bridges and Kevin Dunn, who've been done a wonderful job organizing this event and several others that we've done here. And thanks also to uh, Lindsay Markle and Daniel Barrow of the Foreign Policy Initiative. Uh, we do events that, on history that have relevance to today's issues. I've been hosting an average of about one event per week since we were formed nine months ago. And we particularly like to bring in people who haven't nece necessarily been heard inside the Beltway. Um, so there, there's a tendency, as I'm sure a lot of you know, to, to sort of recycle the same speakers. Uh, and so we were able to bring in uh, our speaker from California, and she's, a, though she's uh, well known, has not actually spoken publicly in DC before. Uh, this, this is the first event we've done on this subject. Uh, certainly one I think that is very relevant to military affairs because it's not just a cultural issue but uh, I think one of military capabilities and readiness and people on both sides of the debate would contend that their their policy is better in terms of uh, maximizing US military capabilities and we do see a lot of history involved in this discussion uh, comparisons with things like uh, bringing um, African-Americans into the military or, or women into other parts of the military or, or changing the policy on gay and lesbian service or uh, the history of women in actual wars. So uh, we very much look forward to a discussion of what uh, we have learned, what we should learn from the past and maybe what, what lessons of the past are not the ones to follow. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Okay, the introductions continue. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Elaine Donnelly, who is the moderator today. And Elaine and I go back a ways working on this topic uh, in tandem. Not always together, but I mean, for the most part, we've been taking this issue very seriously for a long, very long time. Elaine is the uh, founder and president of the Center for Military Readiness, which is an independent, uh, nonpartisan public policy organization that focuses on military readiness and uh, social issues, social issues within the military. She has served on the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services, and probably more importantly, the Presidential Commission on the Assignment of Women in the Armed Forces. She's provided uh, testimony to Congress 
published articles on military personnel issues in a variety of uh, publications. And um, I think probably the most important one she did was the one that uh, she did for Duke Law Review, which uh, laid out many of the legal issues and was a response to uh, an article uh, by uh, Madeline Morris. Madeline Morris, okay. So she uh, Schoolcraft College and University of Detroit, and she lives in Livonia, Michigan. So um, Elaine will now introduce our speaker. Yes, Mac Owens and I do go way back. I think the last time I saw you in person was at the Naval War College when you were a professor there. And I was there for a seminar, and it was a real thrill to meet you. And I've always admired your writings and articles about the issues involving women in the military. I want to thank Dr. Mark Moyer for, for sponsoring this program and certainly the Institute for World Politics for, for, for hosting us here today. I've also been a longtime admirer of Dr. Anna Simons on issues involving women in the military. She has been chronicling the sweep of history right from the start, going back decades ago. In fact, I have a note from her from 1997. We were corresponding that far back because of a book that she had wrote. Um, this may be the first meeting of its kind at a crucial time of change in the armed forces. This is per perhaps the first opportunity that we will have to take stock and figure out where are we going with this? Is this a good idea for women or is it not? In 1992, Professor Anna Simons earned her uh, PhD in social anthropology at Harvard University. It's an honor to introduce her because since then she has, she's been in the field of academia and I'm sure teaching many students common sense as well as everything she knows in the field of anthropology. Since 2007, she's been teaching at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And prior to that, Professor Simons was an associate professor of excuse me, anthropology at UCLA and a visiting instructor in anthropology at Duke University. In 2011, she co-wrote the uh, Sovereignty Solution, a common sense approach to global security. She has conducted field research in Somalia and Fort Bragg, and she wrote a book called Networks of Dissolution, Somalia Undone in 1995. Somalia is still a trouble point. Her list of scholarly articles is six pages long, but she has been in all the major publications, New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, and the African News. I found it interesting that before she entered into the world of academia, she was involved in politics for a while. Uh, she was an assistant to governor, the governor of Arizona, Bruce Babbitt, and an assistant speechwriter for President Jimmy Carter. So I first became aware of her when she wrote her book, The Company They Keep, Life Inside the U.S. Army Special Forces. Her husband, is a retired Special Forces officer. But that wasn't the only reason she wrote about this. She applied what she knew about anthropology to analyze that very special culture of special operations. In that, we have something in common because I'm a civilian, but I have such enormous respect for the culture of people who serve, the rough men who defend our country. I think their interests everything they believe needs to be given more study and more awareness, and that's why we're here tonight. Dr. Simon has brought insight into the community of warriors 
And the funny thing is, there's some people who comment, uh, social justice warriors, but they don't know anything about what real warriors do. Dr. Simon does. I think the reality of civilian control of the military puts on all of us, civilian or former military, we all have a responsibility to watch what happens to the military. They are there to defend us, and we need to be there for them, to defend them. And with great pleasure, here's Dr. Professor Simons. I should actually just go back to California now, so as not to disappoint anyone after that uh, introduction. Um, but I want to thank IWP and FPI for hosting, and I also want to thank Mark for having invited me. I think, I think I want to thank Mark. I say I think because while I've written on this topic off and on for the past 20 years, publicly speaking out is always fraught. And I would say if anyone in the room knows of anyone who's a young, aspiring uh, graduate student in psychology. There's probably no better topic to focus on than why people respond so emotionally to the issue of women in combat units. I'm going to try to stay dispassionate and to be provocative, since I think that's my pedagogical duty, as I review what's been missing from the women in combat unit debate. First, though, I have to do the necessary disclaimer. I'm not speaking on behalf of the Naval Postgraduate School, which is where I teach, or on behalf of any other entity in DOD. If only my views were DOD's views, there'd be no debate. Um, but of course. Uh, meanwhile, others in the room, um, like Elaine and uh, other invitees, have encyclopedic knowledge about the legislative and inside the Beltway history of this issue. And I know others have uh, inside knowledge of the physical, physiological realities of trying to meet certain physical standards. I'm going to defer to them during question and answer, during the questions and answers or the discussion, um, when it comes about injury rates, readiness challenges, and so on. As for the questions I want to raise, they haven't gone unasked so much as they've remained unanswered over the past 20 years. Proponents of women in combat units, those who successfully lobbied for lifting the combat exclusion ban, have done a masterful job of putting opponents on the defensive. Just the fact that I can use these two words, opponents and proponents, signifies who's had the political upper hand. Indeed, Defense Secretary Leon Panetta was brilliant when he declared that all ground combat units would be open to women in January 2016, unless the service chiefs could justify which specific units should remain closed. By putting the onus on the service chiefs and the civilian secretaries to have to try to defend the status quo, he essentially sandbagged any male in uniform who could only then sound like a chauvinist or a dinosaur if he argued for ground combat units staying all male. Those who favored injecting women into ground combat units have also long engaged in clever sleight of hand by equating women serving in combat with women serving in combat units. At this point, only misogynists doubt women's capacity for courage under fire. Combat is not the issue. Combat units are. Indeed, I don't know anyone who's more anxious for qualified women to be able to work with them on certain kinds of missions than special operators, who some might say comprise the ultimate boys club. 
From operators' perspective, women are already a critical asset for intelligence work, reconnaissance, and certain other sensitive missions. Operators' concern, which should be our concern, is how would women's presence help them close with and destroy the enemy more effectively? It can't and won't unless you believe, as some proponents do, that women think sufficiently differently from men and that without them, combat units are missing women's unique approach. I'll come back to this momentarily. First, though, let's review why we have combat units in the first place and why we should want them to be as single-mindedly lethal and focused as possible. Unlike other military units that are responsible for handling logistics, communications, intelligence, and other functions, ground combat units exist to take the fight to the enemy and to kill or destroy more of them than they can kill of us, no matter how long it takes, no matter how little support they receive, and no matter how many casualties they suffer. Casualties, that's what the enemy seeks to inflict. Casualties, or attrition, is why combat units have to be predicated on interchangeability. When someone is wounded or killed, someone else need to, needs to be sent to take his place. Interchangeability, meanwhile, brings me back to the idea that because women don't think like men, they add value. But if that's the case, then women and men aren't easily interchangeable, are they? A female casualty could only be replaced by another female, which, pre which pre presents major logistical and other challenges. So which is it? Either men and women do think alike and are eminently interchangeable so long as they meet the same physical standards, in which case, why add women? Or if men and women don't respond to situations similarly and don't think alike and are eminently, oops, excuse me, um, if don't think alike, well then what does injecting females into small 10 to 12 man groups do to cohesion? Cohesion. That's a term I've come to despair of, thanks to what academics have done to it. Forget what you think cohesion might mean, as in shared interests, attitudes, and affinities. Academics have split it in two. There's social cohesion, which is how much people like each other, and then there's task cohesion, which refers to soldiers' ability to do a job regardless of their interpersonal differences and dislikes. Increasingly, Academics have argued that the only kind of cohesion military units need is task cohesion. To remain effective over the long haul no longer requires that individuals have anything more than the mission in common. Yet, has anyone asked those in ground combat units or the sergeants major who oversee them how they would define cohesion or whether academics might have gotten this wrong? Though even more significantly, and what academics don't tackle at all is, what wrecks cohesion? Curiously, the studies so common, the services, Special Operations Command, and the services commissioned on gender integration didn't delve into this. Maybe that's because all sentient adults know what can wreck cohesion. But if you don't seek it, you don't have to find it. Men and women have been each other's most consistent distraction since the beginning of time. To pretend there won't be problems when young men and women are thrown together for prolonged periods in emotionally intense situations, college campuses, anyone, defies common sense. It also defies biology. There's a Darwinist truism. 
male-male competition, and female choice. Cast back through history or think back through literature, men's abiding interest in women and women's interest in having men be interested creates limitless potential for rivalry, jealousy, favoritism, suspicion, distrust, and friction. Why would we want to interject any of this into combat units? Proponents, of course, say that in the thick of combat, no one's thinking about sex or gender. Okay, that's true, but this is also a classic red herring argument. The potential for trouble lurks after or before the bullets are flying. Spend time around soldiers when they're coming down from adrenaline highs or are depressed or upset or bored or frustrated. They're prone to all sorts of temptations. Red herring argument number two is that men voiced the same objections about blacks and gays not so long ago, and they got over those objections. They'll get over the integration of women too. Except attraction between the sexes is something altogether different from racism or bigotry, which lie at the opposite end of the interest-disinterest or like-dislike spectrum. Red herring argument number three is that numerous of our allies have opened their ground combat units to women, so we should too. But why, we should ask, have they done so? One aim for progressive European militaries is to model social justice. They're quite explicit about this, which of course they can well afford to be. Why? Because who in the end do they know will come to their rescue? I don't mean any disrespect, but few of our allies can get anywhere without our logistical help. Thus, leaving our ground combat units is the only thin line between us and harm. So how, again, will injecting women into their midst make them more lethal in combat? And why haven't proponents been made to answer this? Or maybe advocates here would tell us that our ground combat units likewise need to serve purposes other than combat as well. For instance, maybe they need to do something beyond excelling at, at fighting and need to exemplify social justice or equity. But if equity is what proponents care about, then why don't they lobby for a draft and universal service? Or for those who invoke patriotism, love of country, and women's desire to defend the United States in the same way men do, why don't they argue for all female units? Or for those concerned about career advancement, which does traditionally favor combat officers, why not challenge the promotion system overall, since anyone, male or female, who's not in a ground combat unit must be similarly disadvantaged? Although here I'd note is where more research does need to be done. Are there positions that would or could prepare a woman to be able to eventually compete for a shot at, at being able to be a wartime combatant commander without her having had to lead an infantry squad a platoon or a special forces team first? Could a woman do other jobs and still be able to viably lead an infantry battalion, a brigade, or a division? Which rungs would combat soldiers say they need their commanders to have climbed? Pose these questions to enough men in uniform and it might turn out that there is a way, or maybe there are several ways, to finesse the issue of getting more women into senior military command positions without having to alter the makeup of ground combat units. Is it conceivable a woman would have what it takes in men's eyes to lead them effectively without her having been a grunt first? 
Maybe she doesn't have their speed, their strength, or stamina. But if she proves strategically smarter, why not? If this is one incomplete area of research, a second involves data that already exists. Tens of millions of dollars have been spent on studies, but what about systematically analyzing what's already in the records? For obvious reasons to do with budgets and political sensitivities, neither the Army nor the Marine Corps will voluntarily air their dirty laundry. But how many hours have been lost to investigations and disciplinary actions relating to fraternization, sexual assaults, and or allegations of these and other gender-related issues when men and women have been co-located? Publicly, everyone says glowing things about combat support and female engagement teams. And some officers I know are deeply grateful they were sent American women who could search and interact with Afghan women. Their teams experience no problems with American women who belong to either combat support teams or female engagement teams uh, living on their fire bases. But some teams were, turn, were, were torn apart. How many? Where's the data? And why isn't this considered relevant? Of course, read the studies and they acknowledge between the lines that looking too closely in this direction would prove devastating. Why? Because one conclusion reached prior to the lifting of the ban is that men and women should really be trained together. You shouldn't just thrust them together downrange. When they train together, they bond more familially. They become protective of rather than predatory on one another, which is, which is interesting, especially since, once again, the very real prospect of attrition is being ignored. But say one of these units that had bonded thanks to training together, takes a gender casualty. Then what? Does the whole unit need to be pulled out so that it can be retrained together? In other words, the question is, if training together from the outset is so critical, what does that mean when there's attrition? For anyone not familiar with them, and as I hope I'm making clear, combat units have no civilian analog. No other entities are designed to be sent into harm's way for such indefinite periods of time in order to inflict harm. Wildfire firefighters might come closest in terms of having to cope in a similarly unstable 24-7 environment. But every job you might think is comparable to combat involves shift work. Employees don't only get to go home, but they get a break from one another. They can decompress and regroup apart. Not so in ground combat units. Although people then say, what about astronauts? Surely they're stuck together and have to get along. To which my first one word response is attrition. Does NASA really face attrition and interchangeability challenges once astronauts are in space? My second one word response is aggressiveness. Even if we forget all the other differences between astronauts and combat soldiers in terms of age, presumed maturity levels, and the extensive screening astronauts receive, NASA doesn't need testosterone-filled fighters. Ground combat units do. But then, what else is associated with testosterone? According to what advertisers keep bombarding us with, if you watch any TV at all, with testosterone comes a heightened interest in sex. 
Now, maybe that's just marketing spin. And maybe what we were all taught at a certain age in high school biology class is wrong. But then, in all seriousness, for all the attention that's been paid to cortisol and whether men and women handle stress similarly, what about testosterone? Who's canvassed the literature about that? And if they haven't, why haven't they? And what does that suggest? Missing from the studies done preparatory to opening all ground combat units to women and what's been avoided in the debate thus far doesn't just suggest but confirms this topic has been too politicized for too long. The research is incomplete. At best, the studies done are insufficiently rigorous. At worst, they've been biased. So if, as seems to be the case, we live in an era when social science is allowed to trump common sense, then at a minimum, social scientists should be made to be more thorough, which should mean they need to be sent back to the drawing board on this topic. So, thank you have made some really provocative statements and I really appreciate it. Um, just a couple that come to mind first and then of course you'd like people in the audience to ask you some questions. Uh, the argument has been made that we need women in the special operations forces because that would make them smarter that women have more degrees and graduate degrees and this would increase the quality of special operations forces. Uh, this was stated in a recent uh, special operations forces briefing. I have a printout here that someone in the Army sent to me and I'll also throw this out too in the same briefing. briefing. Under the category myths, not facts, it says it is a myth that women are physically incapable of handling, handling the rigors of combat arms, even though the overwhelming evidence, scientific evidence gathered by University of Pittsburgh for the Marine Corps show that in 65% of combat tasks, um, the mixed gender groups could not compete with the all-male groups. So the evidence is there, but they're, they're asking Army Special Operations Forces to believe this. They also say, uh, it's a myth that women will be a distraction. Well, what is all this, um, you know, photo sharing thing all about? If that's not a distraction, I don't know what is. Uh, women will destroy cohesion and bonding. And thank you for explaining that it's about survival and trust. Um, this, whoever wrote this slide apparently doesn't understand that. Um, it says unqualified women will be pu pushed into combat arms to satisfy political requirements. Well, what are all these quotas about? We keep hearing diver gender diversity metrics, quotas, 25%. Uh, some of the leading advocates have said well, we need a critical mass of 33% or at least 15% in the Army. What is going on here? I mean, you've touched on it with all the social science taking precedence over common sense. But this stuff is official policy now. And, you know, the military is being asked to believe it and act on it. Would you comment? Uh, probably what I should say before turning this over potentially to discussion um, from members of uh, members in the audience um, is that um, political correctness, how should I phrase this? Um, political correctness for quite some time has run amok um, and the people who should be most courageous because they have multiple stars on their shoulders very often over the past decade or so have, I would say, 
been least courageous in terms of uh, drilling down on this question of what it is that actually will help make combat units more lethal and more effective. Um, instead, they've allowed themselves to be thrown on the defensive uh, continuously um, and as a consequence will do things like uh, what you just showed everybody in terms of um, mass production sensitivity training as though that itself does not create both cognitive dissonance in the people who understand fully what reality is but are being told something totally different on the screen which in and of itself then begins to erode trust in senior leadership for making them sit through briefing after briefing after brief briefing in terms of sensitivity training uh, when there are many more important things uh, people have to, to do. Questions? In the back? Hi, Hi Jesse. Hi. The biggest flaw I find with all of this is it's become an equal opportunity issue. It's not an equal opportunity issue. It's a combat readiness issue. And as long as women or men are pushing for this equality on the battlefield, they will find out that ISIS doesn't care what gender race you are. They only care if you can kill them or not. Women will have to fight hand-to-hand -hand combat with the men. ISIS fights on methamphetamines. They fight high. They fight in a way that we've had night fights on the battlefield. And women cannot equally defend themselves under that. The second flawed argument is that, well, the woman can do it, let her. Okay, we've had roughly, what was it, 400 women go through infantry training battalion in the United States Marine Corps, only 30% of them graduated. What happened to the other 35%? What happened to the other 65%? How many of them lost their careers? How many of them are injured or disabled? I want to see the attrition rates for all of these women who are injured and disabled because I saw it when I was on active duty time and time and time again. Women injured and disabled, unable to re-enlist. And when the cost for these women starts skyrocketing, which I dare to say, if the VA were to release the stats per capita of women to men, we would find out that women pay a much higher price with this ideology that we're going to go out there and kick some butt with the males. We're killing women, we're hurting women, we're disabling women. That's all I wanted to add if you can comment. Thank you so much. Uh, I you speak to the broader point of there's a lot of data. There's a ton of data. And the data either has not been released or people have disingenuously chosen to not ask for that data and present that data. And so there's a very slanted view of not only what's appropriate, um, but there's also a slanted view uh, in terms of what the public understands uh, when it comes to uh, women making it through, for instance, ranger school or the first graduates from any one of a number of other courses. So I, I would just totally agree with you in terms of uh, people need to uh, speak up far more often, uh, demanding that data actually be released and that all the data come out. Well, I can tell you that of the women who made it through the Marine uh, enlisted infantry course, half of them had to drop out because of severe injuries. A small number did try out or expressed an interest in joining infantry battalions. As of the last time I checked, the day before coming down here, there are only three and one more 
just the other day, four out of that group. Now, it's a myth to say that these women were not prepared for the gender integrated task force tests. This is the, the, the pool from which we're drawing the three, the first three, and then the fourth one came in separately. These women were highly qualified for their tests and their morale was high and the men were very supportive. The men were average, the women were known to be superior. That's why they were there. And at the end of all these tests, and tests in 2012 and 2013, not one of those test, tests showed any sign or evidence of superior performance on the part of a gender-mixed unit. Now, this is not in any way a criticism of women in the military. I hasten to add, I just have so much respect for women in the military, and it, it's frustrating that nobody seems to ask them what they think, except the Army did a major survey, and they asked if combat positions were open, would you take them? 92.5% of Army women said, no way. So when people say, well, we need a critical mass of 15%, how are you going to get that 15%? Well, you're going to have to have involuntary orders. And remember, the Secretary of Defense, Ashton Carter, after he deliberately ignored the best professional advice of the Marine Corps, presented by then-Commandant uh, General Joseph Dunford, he said, if this is going to be on an involuntary basis, same as men. Nobody should have any illusions about this. So what about recruiting? A survey was done, also thrown down the memory hole, but we've written about it. Um, if these options were open, Marine women were asked, what would you do? 23% said they would leave or they wouldn't join the military, and 22% of the men said the same thing. Now, what are we doing with this? We're pressing on anyway, and it's as if nobody is paying attention to whether this will strengthen those combat units. There's no evidence to show that it will, but there's a lot of evidence to show that it won't. And I would hold accountable, not the women. I think part of the fact that there's a lot of resentment apparently evident on the internet right now, which is appalling, and as far as I'm concerned, it's something new. I think there is resentment welling up, and it gives me no comfort to say that my organization predicted that if you try to teach men in these special operations forces slides, you try to teach them that black is white and false is true, when you do that, you're going to cause men to be resentful of women, and women would get the resentment they do not deserve. And I think that's what we're seeing now. So this, these are anthropo anthropological questions, social questions, military questions. This program tonight may be just the beginning of research that needs to be done. I would say, just um, as a further response, I needed to look at the numbers. Um, uh, two of our students who've since graduated uh, crunched uh, what numbers that they could find. Uh, they were looking at uh, what it means for women to be, uh, I say, injected. Other people would say integrated um, into uh, special forces um, teams. Uh, and they used what they could find in terms of the Army's uh, physical fitness test scores um, and uh, crunched the numbers. And uh, if you make some reasonable, very reasonable calculations, out of 76,694 women in the Army at the time when they did this, which was a couple years ago, maybe 145 of them would actually be able to meet the minimum um, APFT score to actually try out for special forces. Um, so this raises all sorts of questions because we've so politicized this issue. 
um, this scrutiny from the Hill in terms of ensuring that what happens, that women actually make it through. The community itself, the soft community, is rife with rumors about what was done to get the two female rangers through ranger school. I have no idea whether the rumors are correct or not. I've heard a number of things second and third hand. It doesn't matter whether the rumors are correct. The fact that there are rumors itself is extremely problematic in terms of guys assuming what? That there was all sorts of assistance, that there were all sorts of things that were done in order to ensure that at least one, but ideally two women would pass. That's not good. As I say, they very well may have been able to do it. They very, they very well may have done it totally on their own merits. I don't want to take anything away from them. But the fact that there's doubt and the fact that there's suspicion that they didn't is very corrosive of, of trust and it's very corrosive of confidence that DOD actually has soldiers' best interests at heart. Another question. Yes. Quick uh, question. My name is Andrew Stack. I'm a former paratrooper and uh, I worked as a war correspondent in Iraq for four years. Uh, I was at Abu Ghraib in 05. The PAO at the time was a female captain. We're walking around post. We had a mortar barrage come in. And I looked at her and I said, You do realize you're not allowed to be here, don't you? She laughed. I guess my point is this is that this is hypocrisy. At the bottom line, it's hypocrisy. Everybody's infantry. If you're a cook, you're infantry. If you're in that theater, you are infantry. Do you know what I'm saying? Everybody has to carry a weapon. Well, let's, let's clarify. Let's clarify what you mean. Uh, the direct ground combat units are the ones that attack the enemy. Infantry, armor, artillery, special operations forces, I, I, Navy SEALs, they attack the enemy. Some people in support units are subject to incidental combat or contingent combat. They get fired on, they have to fire back, but that is still not the same as the, the units that attack the enemy. So our subject today is the units that attack the I'm enemy. I'm sorry if I'm being a little bit off topic, but from mm -hmm. my viewpoint, you're being shot at, you're being shot at. At the end of the day. Yeah, and I would just go back to what I said, which maybe I wasn't clear enough, that I don't think anybody doubts the fact that women can be as courageous and sometimes even more courageous than men. There's ample historical evidence of that. But being courageous in a firefight or coming under fire and being courageous is, is it's not a difference of degree. It's a difference in kind from being out on your own for an indefinite period of time where it's just 10 of you or just 12 of you um, and you're basically stuck being interdependent. The mission is to beat to beat the enemy. Not not whether women are capable or not. Right. But what's the hypocrisy? Okay. But the hypocrisy is what? The Maybe I'm not clear on what you're saying. Fall back here. The fact that we're talking about this still. It's like mm -hmm. which way is it going to go? No, we're not political footballing. We're serious about this. Oh no, I don't think because we we are talking about. Back then, women officially official. The official line was no women in combat. Mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying. Right. But they're not in active outgoing units. But the fact of the matter remains is that if it's raining bombs, it's raining bombs. We know everybody's in danger. That's a given. Okay, we, we know that. But the Marine report asking for exceptions, which they had every right to file with the Secretary of Defense, said that if you gender integrated units, it would interfere with mission accomplishment and combat lethality. 
Those four words are the key words, and the Secretary of Defense treated them like trash because he doesn't care about Michigan mission accomplishment or combat lethality. It's all about gender diversity metrics and quotas. So there, there's the problem. I'm going to call on Professor Owens if you'd like to comment. Yeah, I'd like to, uh, to respond to that, that point. I mean, that's a good point. Uh, if you're in a combat zone, chances are you're going to get shot. And that's one thing. But I think, as Elaine pointed out, you know, I don't know if you're And the fact is, when you're an infantry guy, platoon, something, you come under fire, you turn and attack the enemy. If you're at a, you know, basically a motor transport unit, uh, convoy or something like that, and you come into a, an area where you're under fire, the idea is to get out as quickly as possible. And uh, again, that's why I think the distinction is between being in a combat zone and being in a combat unit, the purpose of which is to close with and destroy the enemy, which is different. You're a paratrooper, that was your job. I was an infantry guy, that was my job. That's different. And, and, and by the way, I mean, the combat service support, combat support, combat engineers, all these sorts of folks uh, uh, clearly come under fire. They uh, are subject to being killed or wounded, all these sorts of things. And that's not really what we're talking about here. The issue is women in these combat units. And, uh, I myself was uh, the Marine Corps kid what they were supposed to do in the sense of uh, saying, okay, we're going to actually try to test this. We're going to have some integra uh, sexually integrated units here, and we're going to have some all-male units, and we will basically uh, compare their performance. And as Elaine said, for about 65% uh, of the time, the all-male units did better. That's the difference between being in a combat unit and being in a combat zone. And I think that distinction is the, is the most important one. By the way, I always say this, if you think that women in a combat unit is a good idea, read two books. One is a novel, for me it's a romantic play because it's about my unit in Vietnam. It was a novel called Matterhorn by Carl Morlandis. Carl's a good friend of mine. He had a Navy Cross and among other things. Read that book and then read Bing West's book, One Million Steps about a Marine uh, a platoon, basically, or a Marine company that was deployed in the Helmand province. And you see the difference between, again, being in a combat zone and being in combat, being in infantry. The purpose of your unit is to close with them to destroy them. Thank you. Uh, a book I would suggest is a book about um, what happened in Afghanistan, The Outlaw Platoon, by Sean, I forget his last name. And the firefights that they were constantly engaged in just blows out of the water this myth, well, combat is just being in danger and everybody is in danger and it's no different. These guys had to go out over and over and over and attack the enemy. And I wondered how the author even got back to write the book. That's how intense it was. Uh, I think we have more questions. Yes, right there. Second row. Yes, uh, I am. Um my misspent youth, I'm a ring knocker, I did 28 years um, back in the reserve and built intelligence. And uh, I actually wrote a paper with the general staff in my correspondence in the mid-80s claiming that women could be any MOS, military facial specialty, as well as they met standards, which is what you might think. Plus the fact that when my entry platoon first have in Vietnam, it took 15 days between showers, and all the women I met in the army is doing MI, none of them that was a good idea. And um, I would say, I'd throw it up. I had a classmate of mine in charge of medical units in Iraq in the war. And he 
probably his biggest problem was stratization, and it wasn't direct What's going to happen with the four women now who have been qualified and applied to be in infantry battalions? They're going to be all by themselves. And the men will have to, at, in barracks, will have to give up 50% of their latrine or shower facilities to accommodate the women. In the field, they're going to be sleeping side by side in two-person tents. And uh, they're in separate units, so they're not going to have any mutual support. And the real irony is that when they're in a unit where they're supposed to compete with the men, even if they were the top-notch, top performers in the previous unit, they're going to be at the bottom of the ratings, which is very frustrating. Nobody wants to be on the bottom of the ratings. So again, why are we doing this? Uh, the, the, I respect those women who made it through Ranger training. I really do. And I, I'm not making, making any statements I'm impugning what they did. But I understand that two are in the infantry, one is not, is left, and all of that training went by the board. So um, I, I do want to introduce someone in the audience that um, I think brought a, a very refreshing uh, aspect to this in an interview with, actually it was an interview with President Obama and it was moderated by Jake Tapper, Tapper on CNN. And um, Captain Lauren Serrano is here as an individual and uh, she said something, I'm going to read to you exactly what she said, a very respectful question. Good afternoon, Mr. President. A study of the Marine Corps uh, revealed that mixed gender combat units performed notably worse and that women suffered staggeringly higher rates of injury. Just one of those statistics showed that mixed gender units took on or, or took up to 159% longer to evacuate a casualty. Now again, this is where it gets real. As the wife of a Marine who deploys to combat often, that added time can mean the difference between my husband living or dying. Who would have thought it? Why were these tangible negative consequences disregarded? And how can the integration of women positively enhance the infantry mission and make me and my husband safer? Well, the president just sort of rambled on. He didn't really answer her question. The point is, the concerns of this um, Marine captain with a background in intelligence and writing awards because she's, she's spoken out so very well. It doesn't seem to matter. And, and that's really a shame. Other questions? Bob? I, I, I wonder, Professor, uh, whether you've uh, considered uh, whether there's something far more deeper and ominous than, than simply the logic with common sense or illogical social science 
or mysterious motivations. Some have said that this uh, declaration of the fungibility of male and female is ontological anarchy. It's to uh, deny what is the creative purpose of man and of woman. Uh, now, now that suggests that one acknowledge the objective reality of, of the Creator, Almighty God, in whom all military people swear their oath, so they'll be God. But it seems to me that the discussion has really never attended to a serious moral conflict. About dependence also. The one uh, Marine Corps general who suggested that the issue was not a matter of military readiness that concerned him, but it was a matter of what kind of civilization to do with it. Uh, I'd like to comment on the dependence. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I know that this um, comes up in discussions very often. Um, and I just uh, should say um, that while the question of to what extent we're civilized, um, if we allow uh, women to willingly sacrifice themselves on behalf of the rest of us, um, is not a question that I necessarily, it's not a question I'm going to answer here, um, though I think um, lots of people uh, agree with you because it certainly seems um, that they do. My, and I should say also when it comes to uh, questions of physical standards, I've always worried about the, uh, this issue of physical standards and whether the physical standards will be changed, um, to what extent they'll be changed, when they'll be changed and all the rest of it. Because there will be exceptional females who are going to be able to do whatever it is that many males are able to do. And the question that I've always grappled with has to do with small unit integrity. Um, and whether small unit integrity should be sacrificed in order to enable a few exceptional individuals to be granted some kind of set of rights. Um, it's an issue, they might say, of equity. But one of the equity questions that never gets asked is, there are lots of equities, there are lots of stakeholders. For instance, dependents are stakeholders. And I know my husband would kill me um, if I left it that he's a retired officer. He's actually a retired enlisted um, NCO. Um, and, uh, um, and, you know, very, very, very proud of that fact. Um, and so I have a little bit of insight, um, not as much as uh, many wives these days whose husbands have deployed nonstop. But nobody ever bothers to ask dependents, how they, which are wives of combat uh, soldiers and combat Marines, about how they would feel and what it would do to them and what it might do to their marriage in terms of the concern and the worry. When there's a fully capable female on the team for prolonged periods of time with their husband. Whether it's a rational fear or it's an irrational fear. Again, it's a little bit like these rumors about what happened in ranger school with the women who went through ranger school. It almost doesn't matter whether the rumors are true if enough people believe in them. It corrodes and it erodes trust and it erodes and corrodes uh, confidence. Um, and so I would submit, again, with all of the other data that needs to be collected, somebody needs to do a genuine survey of dependents. And dependents don't just include wives. Dependents also include children. And I know the Army War College a number of years ago um, did a study because the chief of staff of the Army was quite concerned about the effect of all these repeated deployments and the fact that fathers were away, or uh, fathers and mothers in, in this case, um, were away, the effects on children and adolescents in particular. 
So we're talking about lots of implications, lots of ramifications. We can ask some very profound questions about what it will do to retention, not just attracting who you're going to attract into the military, because I don't doubt that lots of 18 to 20 to 22 year old males will still sign up. What I do worry about is what happens when that 15 year veteran suddenly now has to um, contend with all sorts of gender related questions when it comes to either the co ground combat unit he's on or the ground combat units he's commanding. Those headaches, those additional headaches, those additional concerns at home are just one more reason for that family team to collectively say, we're done, 20 years, we're out. And then what does that do to retaining all sorts of experience, all sorts of knowledge, and what does that do to retaining people who have sensibilities about what it is that families actually worry about? So I think lots of implications, lots of ramifications. I totally dodged your question, so thank you. No, not exactly. You raised the questions that haven't really been asked, but I can tell you on the Presidential Commission, the subcommittee that I served on about families, uh, we did a conference call with about 50 submarine wives. And submarines, submariners have a very high divorce rate. It's a very high um, stress environment. My father was a submariner. And the wives said they weren't as concerned about the sexual issues as they were about safety, distractions that would cause certain things to be unseen and disasters to happen. And on a submarine, which is the same as being in space, it's that hostile an environment. They knew what they were talking about. And of course, that was ignored too. So yeah, it's, it's a big issue that needs to be discussed. Bill, in the back? Hi, it's good to see you. But the old Washington headhunt psychologist, Stan Heinrich, who talked about the bond between mother and child. And after Desert Storm, there's a photograph. The man is holding the infant. Mother has just come back. She extends her arms, and the baby turns away. Uh -huh. The bond is broken. That child would never trust anyone. And the family dynamics involved in this, particularly Christian, I think, gladly don't care, like break up families. And two, when you've seen those who are horribly wounded, bad enough since a man, if it's a woman, she will either never get married, or if she does get married, or is married, she will be divorced. Just because of what happens to women with their breast cancer. Well, I don't know. I, we've seen some severely wounded women, and they seem to be, it's, it's a challenge to lead a good life, but I don't think it would be fair to say that because their beauty is gone that they're not still beautiful people. But you're absolutely right. But you're absolutely right about family separation and the... Um, uh, the theories that child psychologists have. My subcommittee looked into that very deeply. And there were, at that time, 1992, there were some new studies starting, and we haven't heard anything about them. This topic has gone right down the memory hole. Nobody wants to talk about it. Instead, they talk about gender diversity metrics and getting more women, 15%, 25% in the Navy was the battle cry of Secretary Mabus. And I do want to add something about um, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, General Martin Dempsey, he said, if the standard is too high and the women can't meet it, then we will question the standard. And why would you question the standard? Because you have to make it more women friendly. Now, this can be done in various ways. You can take the toughest 
programs out or the toughest tasks. You can change the scoring systems. You can pass people through even if they didn't pass. You can pre pretend that reality doesn't matter. And that is, to a certain extent, what is happening right now. The extent of it, we've yet to see. I think the Marines have held the line uh, as well as they can. But the Army was way too compliant in going along with President Obama and the Special Operations Forces community also capitulated. They should have given support to the Marine Corps and the very data-driven presentation that they made, which is also being shoved down the memory hole. So enough from me. More questions? Yes. Could speak up a little bit? Um, I think you're asking, is religious liberty being threatened by the new policy regarding uh, lesbian, gays, bisexual, transgenders, LGBT personnel in the military? Is that your question? As a Christian. Right. Christian or Jew or anyone who supports traditional values. This has been a problem right from the start. The myth that uh, repealing the 1993 law regarding gays in the military has gone smoothly is just that, a myth. Uh, there have been five major changes that have been negative, um, one of them being the attack on religious liberty. Uh, the second was uh, gay marriage and benefits, both of which were denied by the Obama administration at the time. Then you have LGBT, transgender is the big issue now, being upheld as a civil rights group with special privileges. And uh, the last one regarding recruiting and retention, that'll come later. But if our economy gets stronger, we're going to see some serious disruption. But on the T part of it, the transgender, doctors and nurses are facing a, a moral dilemma. They're being ordered to do something they consider a violation of medical ethics. I've heard from two military doctors, and they said, how am I gonna do this and teach people under me when I know you cannot, by changing a sentence on a, on a paper, a man into a woman or a woman into a man. You can't do this. It is the ultimate theory that is falling apart, but it's the doctors and nurses. A lot of people are going to be affected. This hasn't gone into effect just yet. The LGBT, small number. Transgender affects everybody. So, yes, it's a, it's a constant problem. Social engineering is butting up against military readiness. And what Dr. Simon and Mac Owens and others in this room are trying to say, wait a minute, the military is there to defend the country. It's not there to advance social agendas. The newest Dakowitz survey, a focus group, the women who were surveyed said, yeah, it's a social agenda. Everybody knows it's a social agenda. There is nothing there to benefit or strengthen the military. So I, I come back to what I said before. It's up to civilians, including civilians in Congress, who voted to repeal that law. Uh, they need to be held accountable for the problems that they caused. And then we can 
see if there's some other way to proceed. Other questions? Yes, Art? My name's Arthur Schultz. Uh, what I bring to this discussion is 20 years as an armor officer. I was in Vietnam. Uh, my cab troop led the, what was called the Cambodian incursion. 60 days of constant maneuver, fighting, one time after another. I would never want to see any woman in that because that goes through at least PMS cycles, which nobody yet has talked about. But when I've asked that question, I'm told that a woman loses 50% of her strength during that cycle. Now, we've talked about task uh, cohesion. Task cohesion seems to me to, has to be built on the ability to do the task. I'm an armor officer, and, and armor is not just driving a tank. You hit a line, you've got to change the track. You're going to have to change the track pads. You're going to have to change road wheels. That's a lot of demanding work. And, and I, I can't imagine women having the ability to pick up a road wheel, pull out, do all the other things, or particularly to do it when you're under time constraints or you're, you're jaw dodging rounds downrange. Uh, we, we all talk about combat. Well, you mentioned infantry. Well, a large part of the infantry job has to be able to throw a grenade. And there's a video that was working its way around the internet that showed a, a woman marine trying to throw a grenade. She goes up and she threw it three to four feet in front of the sandbags, and they, everybody had to hit the ground. That is a physical reality that nobody yet has addressed. Are we going to take that off the list? If you, that was automatically a, a communicator to any other infantry guy that that person is not capable of doing the job. And so I don't see how you get task cohesion or evacuating people. Picking, I mean, I've, we've had up, I was tank company commander as well as captain troop commander. Uploading after you've had a battle is strenuous, and then you just get up and you go again. Plus you're living in, in a confined spaces. I, sorry, there's a bunch of Whatever. Well, the so marine testing. I was not in any unit that, that had women other than the headquarters. But I had a friend when I was a trade off, and this is uh, 19, early 70s, who commanded the first air defense unit in Europe, in Greece at that time. And he came back and he said, that's a thing he would, and, and he was one of the first units that integrated women. And he said that was the worst job he ever had. He would never push it on anybody else. What he said was that once a, once a woman has sex with somebody in the unit, everybody else gets jealous. Yeah. It's a male thing, okay? And, and yet to say that doesn't happen. You look at all the, the, the reports of sexual harassment, and yet here we are saying, oh, we're going to push them together and expect that not to happen? Thank you, Art. Appreciate your comments. Um, I, what you just said reminds me of what um, an admiral told me when I visited the Navy SEAL community in Coronado in 1992. And he said pretty much the same thing. He said, because men have to live and deploy in intimate, and I do mean skin-to-skin -skin conditions, in order to stay warm. You introduce sexuality into that community, he said, and you're going to have disruption like you've never seen before. And he said, it isn't the women's fault. It doesn't matter if they're happily married and not interested at all. The men will compete. So why are we pretending that these factors don't matter? When we see strength, armor, artillery, strength tests, 17% of the women could not do the job. Only 1% of the men could not. 
33 some percent on another heavy task, could not do it, the men only 1%. So if, you're, if your son is a Navy SEAL or in an armor battalion, would you want your son to be on an aircraft doing a high altitude, low entry thing, knowing that 30% of those parachutes are not going to work? Why do we elevate risks like this? I, again, it, it, it really makes no sense. And um, I think we got two more questions or, uh, before we have to wrap up. I, I just want to interject and say, um, I don't, I want us to be very careful and not do a disservice to young women, many of whom are extremely idealistic and a few of whom will actually be able to do everything that you're describing, whether it's live in the dirt after all. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in villages all over, uh, all over Africa where hygiene may not be exactly what it is that we're used to. So uh, I think we need to be extremely careful in terms of the kinds of arguments that actually get made in the 21st century about what it is that young women can or cannot do. And what we need to focus on again is what is it that is going to make combat units more lethal and more effective? And somebody may actually be able to make a very cogent, very persuasive <clears throat> argument that there will be a need for an all-female unit of direct action-oriented individuals who will be able to go in some place unrecognized and do something. I don't think that we should uh, automatically um, dismiss the idea that women aren't, aren't capable. The question, the question that we should be wrestling with is, what do we already know is likely to happen to small unit integrity when you introduce women into otherwise all male units? And it's not just sex that's gonna rear its head. There will be, yes to competition, but there are also emotional bonds that tend to be different very often between men and women than between just men or between just women, especially when we're talking about heterosexual males and females. So to only talk about sex is to also do a disservice to the very complicated effects or dynamics um, that result when men and women are together. Thank you so much for saying that because there are so many new issues right now. It doesn't help to stay in the past. And I agree with you, women cope. They do things that you or I, or maybe I don't know about you, but I, I mean, <laughs> civilian women would, wouldn't dream of doing. And I admire them for doing that. But the the empirical evidence cannot be denied and it is being denied and that's a problem that's got to stop somewhere. You have your hand up. One more. I think you can kind of see where this argument goes when you start with a social Darwinism theory that's based on an essentializing of male and female. And so I want to get back to what you were saying. Let's go to the crucial issue of social cohesion and a small group of people of 10 to 12. And I want to logically follow your argument out to the end. So the principle Nobody said that. is that you're no. saying it's a Darwinian principle that men will be sexually aggressive towards women. First of all, I think that's really dangerous to say to assume that all men in the service will have this compulsion if they see a heter if they're heterosexual, if they have a heterosexual female, to want to engage her is sexually liaison because they're a group of 10 to 12 people in a small unit. I think that's really doing a service to the discipline of our military and what the trooper was saying about 
having a, a transcendent identity as a soldier. And I think that's unfair to men. The second thing is, I think... Can we follow, comment on that first? If we follow your argument out that we need an all-male combat unit because being men, and I assume you mean heterosexual men, they will be more cohesive and more functionally. So my, my question is, how does a gay man fit into the social cohesion of a heterosexual 10 to 12 person unit, first of all? And secondly, if we do adopt your Darwinian premise about the rape proclivity of men, which I think is really unfair to men, um, we, can you then imagine a gay and a gay male and female heterosexual unit that would function better because that sexual attention is on? Okay. We need to we need to wrap up. Okay, enough. Please, we need to wrap up. Okay. Uh, I'll, yeah, madam, let me just wait a minute. You used a word four times that not, was not even said by anyone on this program. And then you exaggerated what was said in a way that's almost bizarre. Um, but to deny that men and women are different, that the counter theory is that we have to eliminate masculinism and masculinist tendencies in the military. The advocates of women in combat are serious about that too. And they have been since the 1990s. So what are you suggesting? That masculinity is a disease? Some people have said that. Some people believe that. What we're saying is we need professional behavior. We need professional behavior between men and women. And we need to acknowledge that people are human. They make mistakes. They're not perfect. Training doesn't solve all issues of personal character. If we're going to have a strong military, we need to allow for that. We need to encourage discipline rather than indiscipline. Some people are stronger than others. We know that. But I really think it's unfair to try to put words in our mouth that are unfair, would you say unfair to men? We respect both men and women in the military. Let me, so, let me ask uh, Dana the last word. Okay. Uh, I appreciate the degree to which you embroidered and rewrote most of what I said. Um, I would just pitch back to you this question if you don't like the idea of essentializing, which is a classic academic term these days. How do you address the attrition interchangeability issue or challenge that will always be faced by combat units? If you do not consider people to be interchangeable, then what do you do in terms of attrition in a war? So I would leave you with that to ponder, and I would uh, ask everybody else to um, thank you again for embroidering what I said and turning it more or less inside out, maybe like a Mobius strip. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, will you please uh, join me in thanking her, Anna?